Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and today we're going to be talking about the anti-war movement and specifically a very concerning trend that I've seen happen in the past few years in the US and Europe, and that is a kind of right-wing creep that we've seen in the anti-war movement and the anti-imperialist movement. Historically, the anti-war movement has been led by the left. I mean, we can go back even to 1916 when there was a split in the Second International over the question of World War I, and the Social Democrats who opposed World War I as an inter-imperialist war, who became the communists, they, they were the ones who were anti-war. And, and then, of course, we saw throughout the first Cold War that it was largely the left movement, the communist movement that was against war and against empire. But there are moments historically in which the right wing has tried to claim the anti-war mantle. Of course, during World War II, there were fascists and Nazi sympathizers who opposed U.S. military intervention in World War II, which is probably the only good war the U.S. military has ever fought in. And, and more recently, we've seen that there has been an attempt by, by right-wing elements, including far-right fascistic elements, to try to co-opt anti-war rhetoric and even anti-imperialist rhetoric. So today to talk about this, I'm joined by a friend of the show, a great journalist, Marlon Edinger, and you can find his work over at Substack at footnotesnews.substack.com. I'll link to that in the description below. And Marlon has also written some books, including he has a book about uh, the French far-right politician Zemmour and um, de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle. And that actually relates a lot to our conversation today because this, this phenomenon that we're seeing of right-wing co-optation of the anti-war movement is also what we see in Europe. And we see this kind of discourse emerging that says that in order to be anti-war, in order to be anti-imperialist, you should support these kind of narrow chauvinistic forms of nationalism in imperialist countries, whether that's U.S. nationalism or French nationalism or British nationalism. We also see an attempt to say that if you want to be anti-war and anti-imperialist, you have to like be against LGBT people. Uh, and we, in general, we just see this very kind of opportunist tendency. So today we're going to talk about that. We'll talk about people like Tulsi Gabbard, Tucker Carlson. We'll talk about examples in France with Zemmour and, and Marine Le Pen. And of course, we also want to talk about the very weird cult that follows the, this man, Lyndon LaRouche. So there's a lot to talk about today. Um, Marlon knows a lot about these topics. I think it'll be a great conversation. But Marlon, let's let's begin. I want to just talk a little bit about the anti-war movement. I know you um, you are from the U.S., but you've also lived in France and lived in both countries and have been involved in left-wing movements. So I know you were involved in the Gravel campaign when he ran for president as like a protest candidate. And when Gravel ran, he ran as the anti-war candidate against imperialism. This is something that has historically been led by the left. I've been involved in the anti-war movement for 15 years around, and it's always been the left. But we've seen, for instance, more recently, people like Tulsi Gabbard, who have spoken out against regime change war, which is refreshing to hear because there are so few U.S. politicians who have spoken about, you know, the wars on Libya, the war on Syria, even the war in Iraq. And but Tulsi Gabbard's a very strange figure because she's also an active member of the U.S. military. She's actually involved in psychological operations and basically kind of colonial uh, propaganda in areas that are occupied by the U.S. military. So she's a very strange figure. To 
to who supposedly portrays herself as anti-war. At the same time, she also claims to be a hawk when it comes to the war on terror. That's a quote of her. She said, when it comes to regime change wars, I'm a dove. When it comes to the war on terror, I'm a hawk. So let's start with there. Um, we saw that Tulsi Gabbard just announced that she's leaving the Democratic Party. And she said the Democratic Party is full of warmongers, which is true. But then at the same time, she's cozying up to Republicans. And she said the Democratic Party is anti-white, which shows this is kind of right-wing rhetoric that's trying to appeal to white nationalists. She also made anti-LGBT comments. So once again, we see an attempt to try to co-opt popular energy of people who rightfully are against war, but then try to turn it into a right-wing direction. I'm, I'm curious what you think about this. Yeah, Tulsi Gabbard's a great case study for all this because I think because of the moribund nature of the anti-war movement in America, a lot of people are very understandably desperate for any representation in the media of that perspective. So when anybody says something like, you know, like Gabbard has said, calling out the catastrophe that the Libyan war was or the bloodthirsty war mongering across the world um, by the United States, they'll latch onto her without looking into the game she's playing or what her past was, what her record actually is. And I think people are a lot more skeptical of people like Obama now because they know that Barack Obama's anti-war posturing when he was a candidate was bogus. He got power. Tulsi Gabbard has never had to put her money where her mouth is, essentially. You know, you could say she had votes in Congress, but if she has two sort of strange periods in Congress, because in her later years, when Trump was president, she did vote against, or it actually wasn't against, I believe it was just present on some of the military budgets. And, but under Obama, she voted for a lot of the military budgets and she has a whole string of, you know, quotations where she got prominent in the media because she was presented as sort of this Democrat who could criticize Obama. And the way she was criticizing him was she, you know, she was accusing him of being soft on Iran. She was saying that Iran is trying to develop a nuclear bomb and that Israel is justified in being worried about that, even though, you know, Israel has been saying Iran is trying to develop a nuclear bomb for decades and Israel has nuclear weapons themselves. She's praised the IDF. She's said that, you know, in Iraq, there should be a, a partitioned Iraq, you know, in the three separate countries, which was that's Joe Biden's line. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, she's saying, watch out for the Iranian militias in, in Syria, which is, you know, a classic shibboleth. Watch out for Soleimani at the time. You know, this is all 2014, 2015. She supported al-Sisi in Egypt, who was this US, uh, British army trained guy who basically took over the country um, at the behest of the United States. She's talked about how, you know, there need to be sanctions on Russia in the past, even. she's She compared, you know, there's this great quote she compared Russia back then to Nazi Germany, but said we still have to be willing to work with them. Um, and I think really when you look at this record, it's not it's not a surprise that she's turned out like she has turned out. And she's made this effective heel turn because there's just so little perspective in the mainstream media. And Tucker Carlson, who you mentioned, is feeding on this. You know, he can he sees there's this gap and he can get people to support certain things if he appeals like because we want to hear all this we want someone to stop the drive to nuclear war of course you know we're close i th think we're closer to nuclear war than ever 
Um, but are these going to be the people that save us from it? You know, Carlson wanted Iran to be, you know, nuked back into the Stone Age just, you know, five or six years ago. So I wonder how legitimate they, they really are. And I don't think they are at all legitimate. And what they're saying, and we, and like I said, again, we know this Obama campaigned as being against stupid wars. Well, you know, Dulce Gabbard says she's against regime change wars. It's good to be against regime change wars, but why not, you know, be against imperialism, U.S. system of imperialism. It's sort of, I see it as very similar, this idea of being only against like bad wars or stupid wars to what Obama was saying. Yeah, it's very similar. And and also in the case of someone like Tulsi Gabbard, it really shows this opportunism where they recognize that as a Democrat, there is no space for criticizing war. Right. She was, of course, a Democratic congresswoman. And now it's very clear that she's throwing her lot in the Republican Party. And OK, yes, maybe she'll criticize some elements of war, but then that means she has to bring in all this other right wing baggage. So it, it shows that there's no there's no opportunity within the U.S. political system of actually articulating a left-wing anti-war, anti-imperialist position that is the only genuine anti-war position. I mean, this, this is the tweet and video in which she announced she was leaving the Democratic Party. And by the way, at the same time when she announced that, she also announced that she's creating like a YouTube channel. So it's funny how like everyone is also just trying to, to ride every opportunity to become like, a YouTuber, right? She now has this like right-wing YouTube t channel. And in this tweet and video, she said, the Democratic Party is under the control of an elitist cabal of warmongers driven by cowardly wokeness who divide us by racializing every issue and stoke anti-white racism, actively to work to undermine our God-given freedoms. And then she says they're hostile to people of faith and spirituality, demonize the police, protect criminals, believe in open borders. Mm. I mean, so obviously the Democratic Party is warmongering, but everything else in here is just incredible right wing red meat for the most reactionary, in many cases, kind of cases, racist people. So the idea that Democrats are anti-white, which is, again, a buzzword for white nationalists wokeness i mean i've talked about this the idea that like wokeness is the problem and not superficial corporate co-optation of wokeness like obviously there, there's no problem with wokeness itself in the sense of being anti-racist and feminist and and supporting lgbt rights those are all basic things that any reasonable human being who cares about you know their their neighbors should should care about is it basic equality but what, what they take what they co-opt is this idea that large corporations are trying to to for their own economic reasons capitalize on this popular sentiment, especially among millennials, because a lot of these corporations they know that their targeting demographic is largely young people. So they try to portray themselves as like woke and progressive. And then we what we see is like the right wing co-ops that and says, well, if you're woke, you're supporting big corporations like Nike, which did a, you know, uh like a Black Lives Matter ad or whatever. Therefore, Black Lives Matter is equal to these big corporations. Therefore, police are good and black people are bad. And I mean, it's it really shows to me how these neoliberals and imperialists, in many ways, they actually reinforce the their own enemies. Like they help create their own enemies by creating that by neoliberal Democrats co-opting this narrative 
of claiming to, to care about feminism and anti-racism, which obviously is good if they actually genuinely were interested in that. But and then <laughs> the right wing responds to that by saying, well, that means that anti-racism and feminism are bad. So it's it's always this very responsive thing. And and at the same time, as you said, people are so desperate for media attention. What that means is that the only people in mainstream corporate media who are allowed to articulate anti-war positions are the Tucker Carlson style, Pat Buchanan style paleocons who are deeply reactionary. And then, of course, the left is never actually represented in any way. Yeah, I mean, that the, the, the phrase anti-white is particularly significant because that comes from this thing called the mantra, which was this guy, Bob Whitaker, who was a, you know, he was he came up on Stormfront, the notorious neo-Nazi forum. And there's this idea that they use the same thing. They say diversity is code word for anti-white. Anti-racism is code word for anti-white, which is part of this whole delirium that, you know, having any significant population of black or brown or Asian people in your country means that white people are facing genocide. And that, you know, that's a whole other thing to unpack. It's not true because of course there are more white people in these countries than ever before. Anyway, nobody's actually being replaced and it's a racist argument, but Bob Whitaker, it's interesting that Tulsi, this phrase has percolated up to Tulsi Gabbard and it really has sort of penetrated mainstream discourse anyway, but it comes from this guy, Bob Whitaker, who was a Reagan appointee. You know, he served in Ronald Reagan's administration and Reagan was the biggest warmonger in the world. And then he went on to have his career as sort of an open Nazi. And so it's all coming from this place. You know, the, a lot of this delirium against woke ideology is obviously boring and played out or cancel culture. You know, it's just all you can make any argument for it. I could say I was being canceled for a million reasons, too, like for being, you know, um, but the reality is everyone will weaponize these this these this rhetoric or the way you talk about it in a certain way, which Gabbard is doing, but it just hides an absence of any actual principles against or for certain positions. You can't pin them down. Like, well, okay, well, what what does what does it mean, cowardly wokeness? What does that actually mean? Yeah, I mean, something that's not that well known about Tulsi Gabbard, which also makes me even more suspicious about some of this, is that. I mentioned that she's part of the U.S. Army and people, some people know that she's in the Army Reserve. She's openly spoke about that. But a uh, friend of the show, Gumby, who does really good research at Gumby for Christ on Twitter, he, he pointed out that Tulsi Gabbard is assigned to the 351st Civil Affairs Command, which is a, a psychological operations unit. They do psyops. And specifically, they also do Civil Affairs Command. That's the official name which civil affairs, that is, which means basically they do psychological operations and propaganda in areas that are occupied by the U.S. military or areas in which the U.S. military wants to have some kind of soft power. And in, in her case, Tulsi Gabbard has boasted as recently as 2021, a year ago in September, she tweeted, Aloha, you haven't heard much from me lately as I've been gone for the last four months on an active duty tour and deployment to Africa as a civil affairs officer supporting a special forces mission to go after Al-Qaeda affiliated jihadists. Now, again, 
civil affairs, which really in this case means psychological operations in Africa. I mean, Africa is the biggest continent on earth. She doesn't say what country it is. We can imagine maybe Somalia, maybe Mali. I mean, the U.S. AFRICOM, U.S. African Command is, is active in over half of the African continent. So this is very suspicious. And honestly, what this leads me to suspect is that there is this, I'll say it clearly, this is what I think what's happening. There is a concerted psychological operation to co-opt a lot of that genuine popular anti-war sentiment and try to redirect it into the Republican Party is what it seems to me that is happening here. We see Steve Bannon himself openly talked about how he wanted to win over Bernie Sanders supporters. And when Bernie Sanders was completely just, you know, shafted by the Democratic Party and they clearly sabotaged the primary, sabotaging their own base in order to prevent him from being the candidate. Steve Bannon and the Trump campaign tried to popularize or tried to uh, capitalize on that energy and tried to co-opt it and say that Bernie supporters should go for Trump. So it seems to me that Tulsi, this is my speculation, but she does seem to be involved in some kind of weird psychological operation with the U.S. military. And it's very shady to me. I don't know what you think about that. Maybe you disagree, but I just wanted to get that out there. Yeah, well, we've talked about that, Ben, I think the fact that, you know, she does put out these criticisms in the media of some of America's imperial con conquests, but I rarely see her talk about Africa. And like you said, the U.S. presence in Africa is huge and the French presence in Africa is huge. There's this huge rush of neo-colonization there or something that really has never ended, but it's becoming more and more important because a lot of these old former neo-colonial puppets in Africa are dying off or their reign or their sort of reign of power is ending. So there's these new popular movements in France. There's a lot of anti-Western sentiment. And when I say Africa, not France, there's a lot of anti-Western sentiment in West Africa, particularly against France. And, you know, like you mentioned, she was there. What was she doing? We don't know. Um, we do know that, for instance, I don't think she probably was in Mali. I think more Somalia or somewhere like that. The Horn of Africa, I think, is might have been mentioned where she was. But in Mali, when there was this coup government recently, the then prime minister, and since then there's been another coup government, but the then prime minister accused France in the West of training terrorists in the Kigal region in the north of the country. Um, you know, Gabbard, who will inveigh against Al-Qaeda and jihadists, never really mentions the U.S., involvement in training or arming these groups in the past just sort of presents them as this ex this explosion or expression of islamist ideology which she views as the greatest threat in the world um and yeah which, i'm sorry to, i'm sorry to cut you off here but i'm you, yeah. you just because you mentioned this when i saw this i i my jaw dropped this is this is a, a, a tweet from her in september this right. september she said, the Islamist ideology that motivated the 9-11 attack remains the greatest long-term threat to the world. Like, obviously, none of us is a supporter, a fan of Salafi jihadist groups, many of which have been historically backed by the CIA and MI6. But the reality that the, the claim that Salafi jihadism as an ideology is the longest threat term threat to the world is preposterous. Uh, what about nuclear war? What about the U.S. empire, which is just waging war everywhere constantly? NATO is the longest 
the greatest long-term threat. She's an active member of the US military. And then she says Islamism is the greatest long-term threat. That that right. is just ridiculous. How many people has the US have the US military killed, you know, in the past 20 years compared literally millions? Literally, exactly. And it's sort of, I think I wanted to sort of touch on this because a lot of people who might be sympathetic to Gabriel here are saying this, like, well, okay, you might have something, but you know, why don't you know some of the things she says are true? Why do you why do you why are you so insistent on pointing out these things about her? She's the most prominent voice uh, in the mainstream media who's getting these ideas out there. And I think it's because of stuff like this, because if you don't, it's essentially lying by omission and also by commission in cases like that. But, you know, if you promote this false narrative about the world, you can't understand the world and you can't figure out why any of this stuff is happening. You think that, you know, Islamist ideology is the threat and the real problem with Obama's wars or Bush's wars is they were coddling the Islamists, which is the classic Republican line. You know, Obama was never really committed to war in Syria. Obama sort of half-heartedly babied Iran and came up with this idea. The real thing that would have solved it would have been sending troops to Iran or, you know, attacking Assad openly after the red line was crossed. It's all the same narrative that she's pushing there's some slight alterations and but in the past she used to push this narrative a lot more you know even ukraine in 2014 she put out this statement um saying that you know russia is decreeing ukraine's territory integrity must we must offer direct military assistance defensive weapons military surprise and training to ensure ukraine has adequate resources to respond to russia's aggressions and defend themselves and now she's saying you know this war we need a diplomacy and negotiations, which I agree with, but it's like a an arsonist now calling for the firefighters. <laughs> she poured gasoline on the conflict for de- for half a decade at least, and now is trying to pull back from it. And I don't think it's really an evolution of ideas. I think it's more a lane she's trying to play. And I think it's a clear right wing strategy. I mean, so Trump is another classic example of this. Trump himself during his campaign. He criticized U.S. regime change wars, which is good, of course, but then he did nothing to challenge war during his actual campaign or sorry, during his administration. In fact, he did the opposite. Trump, for instance, we were talking about Ukraine. Trump sent deadly weapons to Ukraine that even Obama wouldn't do. I remember when Obama was being criticized by Republicans for not sending deadly weapons to lethal weapons, they said, to Ukraine. He only sent non-lethal weapons, which is a hilarious term. It's other more propaganda. It's like when cops use less less than lethal force, but they still kill someone. But anyway, the point is that Republicans were attacking Obama for not sending enough weapons to Ukraine. Trump comes in, the supposed anti-war candidate. He sends weapons to Ukraine that that Obama wouldn't. He kills Qasem Soleimani in an act of war that basically could have started a, a conventional war with Iran. Meanwhile, he's waging economic war on Iran, cyber war on Iran. He he installs arch neocon John Bolton as his national security advisor, who unilaterally withdraws from the INF Treaty, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which is also what set off this war in Ukraine right now, because that meant that Ukraine could potentially put nuclear weapons inside Ukraine because the U.S. no longer had the INF Treaty with Russia. I mean, this is all Trump's doing. And then people say, well, it's not Trump. It's John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. Those are people that Trump appointed. Like the president doesn't control who he appoints as secretary of state and as his national security advisor. 
I mean, obviously, yeah, like uh, I've talked a lot about like the Kennedy assassination and like the limitations of power for a U.S. president. But like, come on, appointing his cabinet is one of the few things that the president actually can do. And appointing like the worst neocons in your cabinet to lead foreign policy shows that you don't actually believe in these anti-war politics, especially considering, by the way, that during the Iraq war, Trump supported the Iraq war, just like Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson also now claims that he opposed the Iraq war. He supported the Iraq war. Tucker Carlson not only supported the Iraq war, he dehumanized Iraqis and claimed that they were semi-illiterate primitive monkeys who needed to be civilized by U.S. imperialism. And by the way, Trump also, during the war, the NATO war in Libya in 2011, which France played a key role, he said that the U.S. should bomb Libya and take its oil, which also was the exact same thing that Neera Tandon said, the Hillary Clinton surrogate who was at the Center for American Progress. So like, I mean, the idea that Trump is like the lesser evil because he's supposedly anti-war is exactly the same kind of rhetoric that Tulsi Gabbard does. It's a, it's a political sleight of hand. And in my view, what they have been doing, this has been an, an orchestrated political campaign to co-opt genuine anti-war energy and, and to, to sheepdog it into the Republican Party. It's the exact opposite of the lesser evilism that Democrats have done for so many years. But now what they're saying is the Republicans are the lesser evil. Yeah. I mean, I had a guy tell me the other day, why are you why are you criticizing, you know, DeSantis and buying into this lesser evilism? I'm criticizing DeSantis because I'm not buying into this lesser evilism. I don't, you know, is it on on Joe Rogan get Gabbard's, you know, sort of agreed with with Rogan that DeSantis was the most reasonable guy around. You know, the left makes him look reasonable, and not even that, just he is a reasonable guy who should be, you know, who's a likely prospect to come to power. And DeSantis, of course, got. His, you know, he was a he was a lawyer in Guantanamo Bay, supposedly advocating for detainee rights back in 2006. I, you know, I'd love to see how exactly forceful his advocacy was for them. You know, he served in Iraq. He was a combat soldier in Iraq. He, he, you know, the, or at least he presented himself as one in his campaign posters, posing with a gun. He very recently has called for more pressure on Iran. He talks warmly about how this pressure on Iran will make our our Gulf allies, you know, very happy. <laughs> He's a complete neocon. There's no question about it. There's no debate about it. I don't, Ron nobody... DeSantis tried to make BDS, the, the boycott sanctions and boycott investment and sanctions movement against apartheid Israel. He tried to make it illegal in Florida as right. Florida governor. And he boasted, he said, when I'm, at, when I'm uh, as governor of Florida, as long as I'm governor, BDS will not be allowed. Talk about cancel culture. I mean, he's, he's like tried to demonize gay people, LGBT people. He's pushed like this groomers narrative, which is extremely right. insulting. Like, fascist. Yeah. And meanwhile, he's literally trying to cancel people who believe in Palestinian rights. Yeah. And, and as to the point about, about Bolton, it's particularly egregious uh, because of any position in the cabinet that the president has most direct control over, it is the national security advisor. because as opposed to something like the secretary of state, it doesn't require Senate approval. There's no barrier to him appointing anybody in the world. He wanted to be national security advisor and he chose John Bolton and people will say, well, then he fired him, but it's, it's irrelevant. You know, like you said, Bolton got America out of this treaty, which if you're concerned about nuclear war today, 
he deserves a huge amount of blame for that. We're closer to it than ever because of moving away from diplomacy on reducing nuclear weapons and ending dialogue on on that. Um, and I think this is a sort of a good point to get into NATO because you said Trump ran as this anti-interventionist. And a big thing he, he was accused of being by sort of the D.C. Democrat Republican blob was it being anti-NATO. But was he actually anti-NATO? Because his whole complaint was that NATO wasn't paying enough and they're ripping the United States off and that because they should pay the 2% of their GDP each that they're required to, all the members. And guess what happened? He put this pressure on them and a lot of the country, of the, the member states increased their commitment to NATO funding. That was the actual effect of Trump's supposed anti-NATO position was strengthening NATO. for NATO. <laughs> it was strengthening NATO. And that was the result. And that's the result now. That's Trump's influence on NATO. So now, of course, we see that there's a split going on between and the Republicans between Trump and DeSantis. We see people, you know, even Alex Jones, who's himself a very shady operative as well. And he and actually Alex Jones is a great example of these this attempt to try to co-opt popular discontent and dissent and people rightfully being skeptical of the government and skeptical of you know war and trying to co-opt it and turn it to like the far right direction alex jones is a case study of that just classic fascist scapegoating tactics and misdirection and sheepdogging but so anyway the point is that alex jones and others they've all come out now for ron DeSantis, who's a complete neocon like in, in no way can you even claim that he's like so-called anti-interventionist. He supports war on China. He supports war on Iran. He supports the brutal economic blockade of Venezuela. He supports the blockade on Cuba, where every single year at the United Nations, more than 95% of UN member states vote against the illegal unilateral US blockade on Cuba. So meanwhile, Joe Rogan, who's another one of these characters who like, you know, he'll sometimes go with the left, but he'll often go with the right and increasingly more and more with the right. And he has on all these charlatans, you know, Ben Shapiro. And he has on like uh, Jordan Peterson, which one? like uh, who says, like, th the problem is not, you know, neoliberalism. The problem is not economics, capitalism. The problem is you need to, like, clean your room. But anyway, uh, yeah. so which sure. But yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Yeah, so completely anti-materialist analysis of anything political. But here's this clip of Joe Rogan. You, you clip this out of Tulsi Gabbard agreeing with Joe Rogan that Ron DeSantis is more reasonable than anyone on the left. Ron DeSantis, who seems to be like the most reasonable amongst the, the potential candidates. He seems to be, you know, a, a pretty no-nonsense guy, not without his flaws, but it he's more reasonable than anything that I'm seeing on the left. Yeah. It's well documented that the Iran deal flushed them with cash. They're saber rattling in terms of doing missile, ballistic missile tests, which the Obama administration basically let them get away with. I think uh, NSC advisor Flynn's statement was important because it says we're gonna stop the policy of letting Iran get away with more belligerent behavior after more belligerent behavior, just so we can keep this uh, Iran nuclear deal, this piece of paper intact. I think that they're going to be tougher on Iran, and I think our Gulf allies will be very happy to see that. Ron DeSantis, who seems to be like the most reasonable amongst the... Oh, my God. So, I mean, 
to me, that should be so just discrediting. Like this guy is a complete neocon. But for me, it shows the success of this operation. It's very sad. They have been extremely successful in trying to rebrand these right-wingers, these, these Republicans as the actual so-called anti-war voices and try to co-opt a lot of that energy that was in the anti-war movement, which has never been that big. But the anti-war movement, in my view, has been so destabilized by this because there are so many, especially young people, who are just confused and they do see that it's correct that pretty much all Democrats with a very few exceptions are pretty pro-war and pro-imperialist, which is very sad. And this is true in Europe as well. All of like the old school social democratic parties, which have never been good, but they're all just pro-imperialist, they're pro-NATO. And then there's like a few people on the right who try to like, they'll say a few, they'll throw out a few uh, buzzwords claiming that they're against like globalism or whatever, which is also like anti-Semitic buzzword. It doesn't mean anything. They never talk about empire or imperialism or capitalism. It's always globalism. And they've been very successful in convincing a lot of people that if you're anti-war, you need to also basically be a conservative. It's really weird. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that in, in France, which I've covered a bit. There were two candidates in the last election, Eric Samour and Marine Le Pen. Marine Le Pen, obviously more prominent, but Samour is this longtime cable news pundit. They always compare him to Tucker Carlson in the news articles, but he's, I think he is more of an intellectual for whatever that's worth. He, he's a he's a writer. He writes a lot of books. Not a, He's much more evil, maybe, but he's, he's not an idiot. Um, and a, he's been a longtime alleged critic of NATO and the European Union. You know, he'll serve up these criticisms that are of, for instance, the European Union that are completely reasonable. He'll say that the EU is just promises nothing but austerity and, you know, no employment, a reduction of employment, etc. But at the same time, they'll say the real, well, the real problem of Europe is also they're promoting multi, multiculturalism and LGBT ideology. And that's the reason why, you know, uh, like, for instance, Ukrainians in the East were rejecting it back in 2014, that it was this godless secularism that really repelled people when it came to the European Union. And he also claims to be against NATO. And there's a big history of this in France, which I think sort of serves as a warning to people who might be encouraged by the sort of more prominence of people on the right in America to criticize some of these international institutions. Like in France, Charles de Gaulle, who was the war hero of the resistance, that's a whole other history. He played less of a role, I think, than people attribute to him. But he became president of the Fifth Republic, which was formed years after the World War II ended. But he managed to unite like a fractured parliamentary landscape where there was no one force that could actually come to power. And he is now this sort of secular saint in France. You see streets named after him everywhere, metro stations, everywhere in the country. Um, you, nobody can really criticize him. He's like George Washington, but if George Washington had been alive when your grandparents were, you know, these fond memories really exist of him. And he took France out of NATO, is what they say. You know, famously, 
he had these com this conflict with America. He didn't like he had a conflict with the British Empire, the American Empire, because he wanted to preserve the French Empire. Um, and he believed during the war that Roosevelt and Churchill were going to take this opportunity of, you know, fighting off Germany and liberating those territories and then keep them for themselves instead of giving them back to the French Empire. So there was always this history. And eventually, you know, he did leave the integrated military command of NATO in 1966, which is not the same as leaving NATO. And it's something that's kind of left out of a lot of these critiques. Though Zamor is interesting because he acknowledges it and he explains very well in his books why de gaulle left nato and it's not because de gaulle was really an enemy of the foreign policy of nato not entirely the, the warmongering of nato he still actually worked with nato france so even though they took french staff away from the headquarters of the nato command structure they still had French personnel at NATO's political headquarters in Brussels, and they had liaison offices, and they worked out secret arrangements with NATO in case of war, of course, with the Soviet Union. And in the 90s, you know, when NATO invaded Yugoslavia, French forces were involved, and French was part of the NATO military committee. Um, and so the real reason that Zamor articulates is that De Gaulle wasn't on board with this idea that if you're part of NATO, your armaments, you have to purchase your armaments from the United States. That was a big reason and still is a big reason why NATO wants these increased spending commitments, because you need to have NATO standardized weaponry, NATO standardized ammunition. And when European countries contribute more to the NATO budget, it goes directly to American arms manufacturers, more or less. And De Gaulle wanted a, an armaments industry in France itself and to take it economic advantage of that. And that's the basis of Zamor's opposition to it as well. You know, he has no real, um, what would you say? He has no real, he has no real opposition to war. His, um, his defense policy, it's for the volunteer fire department. Okay. He has no real opposition to war. Samor's defense policy calls for recruiting 50,000 more soldiers. You know, he wanted to raise the budget by 3.6 billion euros a year. He wants the defense budget by 2030 to be 70 billion a year, which I guess doesn't sound much compared to the United States, but it's a lot more than it is in France. And in African military bases where France maintains this network of neo-colonies, he wanted to double the, the number of troops from, from 7,000 to 14,000. And so I think what people need to get about this opposition to NATO is Maybe if you support these people, they'll oppose the drive to war in Ukraine because it serves a limited foreign policy objective of theirs. But you got to see what else they're trying to get for, because I don't agree with more French troops in Africa. I don't agree with a much larger French military budget. And Marine Le Pen does the same thing. She, too, does not actually call for France's removal from the alliance. She calls for France's removal from the integrated military command. And. You know, she, during her campaign, made these same pitches. We should leave NATO because France's military is being degraded. They say, oh, we don't have enough ammunition in the French military. If a war started, we'd be out of armaments within days. You hear the same type of things from conservative critics of, like, even Obama, that they're degrading the military. Trump would say the same thing. You know, how can you be against a war when you're devoted to 
increasing the destructive capacity of the most bloodthirsty armies in the world. You can't. Yeah, it's this very narrow, self-centered, supposed critique of war or even fake critique of imperialism. They say, well, uh, the reason that we're against U.S. imperialism is because we want French imperialism to be stronger. They don't want French imperialism to be subordinated to U.S. imperialism. I should point out uh, for people listening or watching that you actually wrote a book about Zemur, um, Zemur and Gaulism, published by Ebb Books, EBB Books, which is a great anti-imperialist uh, leftist publisher. And this actually, this actually gets me to a topic that I, an, an issue that I wanted to bring up, which is related to this, which is how there's a sleight of hand that's done where people like Tucker Carlson or Trump or Marine Le Pen, they will say, yeah, we don't want this war with Russia. We, we, we don't want this war in Ukraine, but that's because they want war with China. And this is exactly, uh, for instance, um, Meloni, the new far right leader in Italy as well. She's very close to the Taiwan lobby and has pledged more support for Taiwan separatism and basically war on China. And of course, this is bipartisan in the U.S. We saw, um, you know, Biden has repeatedly threatened war with China over Taiwan, which the U.S. technically recognizes as part of uh, part of China and the one China policy, according to the three communiques signed when the U.S. normalized relations with China in the 70s. But the U.S. violates that policy. But this reminds me, I mean, I did an episode with Ravi Martin and we talked about Tucker Carlson and we showed the video clips in which Tucker Carlson says this clearly. He says, our enemy is not Russia, our enemy is China. And Marine Le Pen said the same thing. She hmm. said the reason that she doesn't want war with Russia is because she wants to unite the Judeo-Christian West against China. Here, here's Politico. Le Pen vows to keep Russia close to prevent an alliance with China. Now, they, they see Russia as like an ally because they see it as like a white country, as a Christian country. It's Christian Orthodox. They see Russia as like a conservative bastion. You know, it, and unfortunately, Russia does have like a lot of anti-LGBT policies. So they, they I think that's a good thing. Right. And they like see Russia as like this uh, beacon against so-called globalism and China as the real enemy. So once again, we see that this this popular energy that should be against war and empire, like, yeah, we shouldn't be fueling this proxy war in Ukraine in which Ukrainians are pushed into a meat grinder in order to try to bleed Russia, as Lloyd Austin said, to weaken Russia. Like, we, we, NATO should not exist. But that doesn't mean that, like, the solution to that is instead waging war on China. So once again, it's always redirecting popular energy that, that is good. Like, we want people to speak out against this proxy war with Russia. But redirecting it into a whole other war. Like, instead of saying we don't want any war, it's, no, we're waging war on the wrong, the wrong country. And this is... Very common in Europe as well, as I'm sure you know. It's not just Tucker Carlson in the U.S. and Trump. Yeah, I mean, when I and it's in, it's increasing in the even just the past few years. When I was in France in 2020, I bought a Huawei phone, and now that I'm back in the U.S., I had to buy a new phone. Huawei phones don't work; they get kicked off the grid. Um, when I was there, you know, they were building. I think Huawei was building a lot of the 5G towers, but France cut off the contract because they're bound to the sort of drive to war against them, even though some people think Europe will be a little more nuanced because of trade. But I think a lot of that is shifting because of 
the the war, the situation was really changed in Europe after February 24th. There's not so much of a, there's really a unification of the Atlantic um, alliance and the Atlantic objectives, whether or not people in Europe want that. That's all what it's oriented towards again. And like you said, Maloney, you know, I, I, all these people were talking about, I oppose for political reasons that are not just their foreign policy positions. I find them reprehensive and vile for a million reasons. But a lot of people say, you know, even if you oppose them for those, shouldn't we ally contingently based on certain positions? And I don't think we, I, I don't know, I don't think we should in the first place, but if you accept that we should, I think it's important that you make this distinction that they are driving for war all over the world. There's no question that Maloney and uh, France, you know, Maloney will try to just increase Italy's prominence within the EU. They want Italy to lead the EU. It's the same in France. A lot of these critiques of the EU, there's no one really advocating to leave the EU anymore in in, in France. They just want to become the leading power in the EU and take over this market and uh, the foreign policy of the of the bloc. And if that foreign policy is war with China, um, an expanded empire in France, you know, any suppression of any popular resistance in West Africa. I keep saying France when I mean Africa, which says something <laughs> about their relationship that the colonial relationship France has with the continent. Um, yeah, I should just point out briefly that there are numerous countries, largely in West Africa, whose currency is still controlled by France, the CFA franc, even though France uses the euro. So, right. And my understanding is also that they have to keep half of their central bank reserves in France, which means that they don't actually control half of their own their own foreign reserves. And That's get this, neocolonialism. France also controls all monetary policy decisions. In the paper, it doesn't say France. It says like the leader of the bank, but the leader of the bank is a political appointee of a French of, of a French political appointee of a bank of the bank that issues the currency. So any monetary policy decisions can be vetoed by France, which, you know, there's this obsession with deficit reduction, this neoliberal obsession that you can't have any deficit spending for de- which you need for development. So these countries effectively cannot develop and can't access credit on their own terms, which you know, a lot of them then are looking to other foreign policy arrangements, which is why there's this fear mongering about the Chinese influence in Africa, because they they need credit. A lot of these countries aren't even led by people who would be ideologically sympathetic to China or, or Russia. They just need credit to develop, you know, and, Some and China even... doesn't have political demands. It says, OK, here's the credit and we don't have to impose structural adjustment like the IMF and World Bank. It's not even ideological for many of them. No, not it's not at all, because a lot of these people are like former French puppets or with maybe moving a little bit towards, well, I'd want to do something for my country, you know, <laughs> even though they don't do much. Um, yeah. And so that's why I don't think you can ally with people just because they share some limited criticism because then you're going to put them into power and then they're what are they going to do with that power they're going to invade libya it's the same it's i keep going back to obama but i think obama is a perfect model of this nobody would take you seriously if if i said well we should support obama because he was against stupid wars or we should support john mccain because he criticized obama's foreign policy 
these things are transparently ridiculous to say, but I don't think it's that it's a little too uncommon. These same criticisms being made about Gabbard or Carlson or DeSantis, you know, I don't think we can or should, or you don't, you shouldn't let yourself be taken in by this because it's just going to lead you to another war. Absolutely. I think that's very well said. And this is a point that I made when I had a similar discussion with friend of the show, Rania Kalik. And we were talking about how, look, if you talk about the politics of and the strategy of coalitions, it's very complicated and it can be very messy. And historically, there are some examples, but there are there are some lessons from these uh, these coalitions. One, if you're going to form a temporary political coalition with someone, you need to have concrete, tangible goals that you can actually meet. So, for instance, if there's a piece of legislation that is being considered, then, yeah, you can maybe in the short term form this coalition to get the legislation passed. There's no legislation being proposed right now to defund NATO, to end the war in Ukraine, to do any of this, to support peace talks. No, none of this. This is like when a few of these fascists like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's quite literally a fascist, I mean, she campaigned shooting the word socialist in her in her propaganda ads. She calls herself a Christian nationalist. She called Black Lives Matter a terrorist organization and the greatest threat to the United States, like straight up fascist. People were like, well, she's calling for abolishing the FBI, so we should unite with her. It's like, when when is she going to propose legislation saying defund the FBI? Until they do that, it's just all complete BS. It's all propaganda. There's no, I mean, you don't form a coalition without a concrete political goal. Second of all, if you form a short-term coalition like that, you also need to keep in mind that the, the parties and coalitions that are weaker are almost always devoured by the larger party in that coalition. The anti-war left, unfortunately, is not strong. It has no political capital in the bourgeois system. And if you it were to form like a short-term political coalition or something with like these fascistic MAGA Republicans or whatever, they would be the ones who determine the agenda. Like that's not how you, that's not, if you're actually thinking in long-term about strategy, you would not form a coalition in those circumstances. So it's like people, they talk about this idea like, well, we should unite, left and right unite against the center. But, but in, for what? In defense of what? What are the actual policies you want to defend? And then they actually can't, well, ending this and ending this, ending war, ending NATO. And then you look, these people on the right, they're not actually serious about ending war. They want different wars. They're not actually serious about ending NATO. They strengthen NATO. And all it does is actually it redirects the left. It discredits the left by associating it with these reprehensible fascistic figures. And at the end of the day, it ends up strengthening the right. And what this reminds me of is and now I want to shift a little bit and talk about fascism and specifically Lyndon LaRouche and his movement. But I, I just want to briefly read a quote from Michael Parenti, because a lot of these people, when, they, when they're talking about like left and right unite against the center or whatever, they don't understand what third positionism is and the history of fascism. Fascism has often portrayed itself as this third positionist movement against right and left while actually being far right. And Michael Parenti wrote about this in a brilliant essay about fascism. And this is also part of his book, uh, uh, Black Shirts and Reds, which is one of the best books about the history of fascism and communism. And he said, fascism is a false revolution. 
It makes a revolutionary appeal without making an actual revolution. He points out that before World War I, Benito Mussolini was a socialist, but the, mini, the, the minute the wealthy classes in Italy offered him financial support and power, he didn't hesitate to switch sides. We know about people who switch sides, don't we? And there are so many examples of, you know, in Germany, there was a very similar pattern of complicity between fascists and capitalists. German workers and, and farm laborers had won the eight-hour workday, unemployment insurance, the right to unionize. They had built very powerful political institutions, but heavy industry and big finance were in a state of near collapse. Business wanted to cut wages and get tax cuts and massive state subsidies to revive profit levels. The German tycoons greatly increased their subsidies to Hitler, and the Nazi party was propelled onto the national stage using rhetoric of being the so-called German so national socialist german workers party right like so it's always about redirecting that popular energy and using scapegoats and rhetoric so georgia maloney in in, in italy she talked about yeah i'll, I'll, I'll go to you in a second because you i know you were posting from that brilliant book but georgia maloney in in her speeches she talks about the financial speculators this is a, a mussolini admirer who got her start in italy as the leader of the youth movement of a neo-fascist party. She, she, called, she said that she's against the financial speculators. Okay, it's like, it's like the globalists. That means nothing. Not the capitalists, not the imperialists. It's always trying to redirect this energy and co-opt rhetoric and talk about the establishment and even the ruling class. Steve Bannon talks about the ruling class. He doesn't say the capitalist class. They never define these terms, so they're vague enough that fascists and anti-Semites and that white nationalists can agree with it. And then even some young, um, largely young, impressionable, naive people who are like, oh, well, or even like these people like Jimmy Dore. He listened to that fascist speech from Georgia Maloney and he was like, she's against the financial speculators. She's one of us. It's like, no, dude, when she says financial speculators, she's not talking about capitalists. We all know that's fascist buzzwords. And you, you were pointing out here, you just read this book recently and you posted great, excerpt on Twitter about how capitalists were funding Hitler and he himself was deeply anti-socialist. He was throwing socialists and communists in, in concentration camps. Meanwhile, his party was the, the, the National Socialist German Workers Party. Like it, it shows once again how cynical this, this attempt to co-opt this, this anti-war and anti-establishment energy is and turn it to the far right. Yeah, this is an excellent book, Who Financed Hitler? And they talk about how in uh, when when the Nazis became the largest party in the country, there was sort of this, mom this moment where they had to put their money where their mouth was. There was a left flank of the Nazis and they introduced a bill that called for the immediate expropriation of, the, of the, all the assets of the banks. That sounds good. Right. Of course, they said the Jewish owned banks, too, but they considered them all to be all the banks. And Hitler was furious because he, as you read from that quote, he was funded by a lot of heavy industry and by the Prunker, the, the Junker aristocrats, which were the old Prussian elite that controlled industry in the in the country. And he told every single one of his deputies to remove the bill from the Reichstag and then the Communist Party sort of as a provocation, introduced the bill, a bill with the exact same text into the Reichstag, which would have expropriated every bank in Germany of all their wealth and, you know, called for a vote on it. 
and Hitler instructed every single member to vote against it. As you mentioned with these coalitions, we, there's a history of this. They're not going to do it, or they're not going to do the part that you want when they have the chance to. A lot of people voted for the Nazis who, in that one election because Germany was going through a horrible depression. Unemployment was unfathomable. And then at the next election, millions left, stopped voting for the Nazis because they saw what happened. But at that point, it was too late. You know, they went over to the communists, a lot of these dissolution workers. And yeah, that's the point. They're not going to do what you want. And it'd be like, it, it's nice to say we could have a cross-class alliance and that we have common interests, but I don't think we do have common interests. And you mentioned LaRouche. Um, I was at this conference of his recently, the other day, uh, when I say his, his organization, because he's died a, about a year ago now. And he's this really interesting figure. He started off as a Trotskyist, a member of the Socialist Workers Party. But by the 70s, he was very disillusioned by the new left. And he thought they were a bunch of bums and hippies who could never get anything done. And he started talking about there needing to be like a stormtrooper movement that could ally with the industrialists of America and reindustrialize the country. And he was no longer a Marxist. He said that in the eighties. I don't know if I ever was a Marxist. Anyway, he's a very sort of fascinating figure to a lot of people because one way that he got all these, these followers was through uh, basically a lot of these very attractive conspiracy ideologies, Russiagate, as funnily enough, the idea that Trump was actually literally a German uh, Russian agent recruited by the KGB in the 80s comes from one of LaRouche's publications called the Executive Intelligence Review, which claimed to be this private intelligence network. He claimed to have associations with, and he probably did with a lot of the intelligence agencies in the West. Like, for instance, in Germany, um, the printing press that printed the EIR is the same printing press as the German. Uh, I think it's this. I forget the name of it's one of their intelligence agencies uses not the BND. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head for sure. Well, just on the subject, yeah. I mean, the BND, which is the German Federal Intelligence Agency, was founded by former Nazis with the CIA's backing, including Reinhard Galen, who was right. he was the head of Nazi intelligence during World War II on the Eastern Front, and then he was recruited by the CIA. He created the the Galen organization. And then he created German intelligence BND, all under the tutelage of CIA. I mean, so like all these networks go very deep and the far right has been deeply involved in all of them. Yeah. And so LaRouche's involvement is uh, of this nowadays is he pushes a line that I think, or his organization pushes a line that's very attractive to a lot of people who are post-empire. He is against the drive to war against Russia, against China. You know, he says accurately that a lot of the renewable energy push in the West is hypocritical. But he goes further and he says there is actually it's it's a Malthusian push to kill off humanity. He doesn't just say that, you know, a lot of this he doesn't he doesn't talk about greenwashing, like the idea that a lot of the environmental movement is funded by NGOs and is pushing foreign policy goals and doesn't really commit it to addressing any of the threat of climate change, but he says the entire motivation is to depopulate the earth almost and uh, reduce the living standards in Western, Western countries or stop living standards from rising in developing countries by denying them access to 
to fossil fuels. And he had, there was this conference recently called, you know, in, Man, in Manhattan that talked about stopping green fascism. Yeah, and, this is this is the the conference. It's it's at their the website of the Schiller Institute, which is their think tank cover. Like that's the front group they use to try to recruit people from this yeah. this cult, the Larushite cult. And their conference was called "Build the New Paradigm: Defeat Green Fascism." Right, and for them, green fascism is this idea that um, the interventionist foreign policy of the United States is increasingly driven by concern uh, by pretexts of um, green this this green energy revolution. Like they'll say that part of the reason why Russia is being attacked is because the U.S. wants to reduce the amount of oil that they're able to export, which is probably true, but not for that reason. You know, it's true because they want the EU to be dependent on liquid natural gas. There's no actual opposition to fossil fuels in any of this. The U.S. is eager to sell natural gas to the European Union to fill that gap and to sell it at four times the rate they sell it here. Um, but one of their lines is that you saw in that image, there was that map of the entire world with this network. And it's something they call the World Land Bridge, which was a long time idea of London LaRouche, a massive infrastructure project to connect the world and create this explosion of trade and innovation and industry. And they now say that China has adopted their project through the Belt and Road Initiative, which is, they call it the New Silk Road, and it's going to connect all of Asia over. You, your listeners probably know about this too. Yeah, well, what, what I should point out briefly is that LaRouche and his cult, the LaRoucheites, they have a long history of like their parasites and they'll try to leech on existing political movements and then take credit for it. And this is one of the most hilarious examples ever. LaRouche claiming that like his idea inspired China, the most populous country on earth, to spend trillions of dollars building this massive global infrastructure project. It, it shows once again that like, they're peak opportunists and they'll find like these existing political tendencies and projects and then try to like leech onto it and take credit. And, and yeah, I mean, obviously I talk a lot about Belt and Road and it, for a lot of people around the global South in particular, it's been a very important project, but it shows once again that like these far right groups and the, the Rushites are far right. They're fascistic. They, they once again, well, well they're talking about green fascism and redirecting energy away from people who should be criticizing imperialism and in crit criticizing greenwashing, they're basically saying, yeah, climate change doesn't exist. It's all conspiracy. And you pointed out that at this conference, they argue that, that the, the planet can sustain three trillion people. Right. Well, they said at the time of the calculations, which were decades ago, they said three trillion. But now with advances in industry and science, it's probably many times that amount. So I don't know, nine trillion 12 trillion who knows um but it, it, there's a like there's a fundamental incoherence that they say that china is has adopted the larouche program because the whole premise of this conference is that the renewable industry is a anglo-american plot to undermine the developing world by denying them access to fossil fuels but of course the country developing the most renewable energy infrastructure in the world is china the country that isn't selling the most solar panels in the world is China. You know, China obviously is very concerned about 
climate change. And when I asked them about this, they gave me a sort of stammering answer. They said, oh, well, they're just trying to build credibility in international institutions. Some people believe it, but they don't actually believe it. Um, they're like, you know, China will still give loans for coal plants, which I don't believe is true now. Didn't they recently come out with a decision that they wouldn't give loans for coal yeah. plants? Yeah. So that, I mean, it's not even true. Yeah. If I can just jump in for a second here, I'll, I'll, I'll point out that, yeah, I mean, China is still very much a developing country. It, it is. It now has the largest economy on earth in terms of purchasing power parity. That's because it also has 1.4 billion people. If you look at per capita income, it's still a relatively poor developing country. So yes, China, people point out that China has large carbon emissions and it still does use a lot of dirty energy like coal and oil and gas, although it's moving toward renewables. Although again, we should keep in mind per capita emissions. This is a, a country of 1.4 billion people. So just doing net emissions and comparing China's net emissions to like US or European net emissions is preposterous because you're comparing a country with 1.4 billion people to much smaller countries. But anyway, this is from Bloomberg, which obviously cannot ac be accused of being like secret communist propaganda. They point out, th this is a graph showing that China is installing more renewable energy than every other country on earth combined. So in 2020, yeah. China installed more wind turbines and solar panels than all countries on earth combined. So in the, the US installed 28 gigawatts worth of renewable energy in 2021. China is installing 156 gigawatts in 2022. So again, this idea that like China is against the environment or something is preposterous. China is doing more objectively than the US and Europe combined to fight climate change. Yeah. And it's just this completely contradictory position, which is not uncommon among these sort of fascistic movements at all. They're incoherent and on their face, oxymoronic and oxy and moronic also. Um, and so I sat at this conference and there were all sorts of, you know, there were lectures about classical music education. There was singing of Amazing Grace, which apparently is actually a very evil song because it implies that humans receive absolution arbitrarily from God rather than through their own industry. I think it's a nice song. I'm not a Christian myself, but it's a beautiful song. But apparently it's an evil song. Um, and there were lecture, you know, there were these discussions about classical music education, um, how that's the problem in the education system that uh, counterpoint is no longer taught in music theory classes, though it is. I mean, I went to a, a relatively good public school, and so I was able to take music theory and that you still learn voice leading and counterpoint. I don't know. I'm not really sure what the criticism actually was. Um, but And then there were a couple of speeches about how we've strayed from the principles of the founding documents and how Hamiltonian economics is the only path out of this sort of dominance by financial capital, which is odd because, of course, Hamilton was an exponent of financial capitalism. He just believed there should be a national bank of in the United States they never really get into the details, of course. You know, like when I asked them about this incoherence with climate change and support of China, they had no real answer. But they would talk a lot about how important it is to get the details right. Not a surprise. And of course, they whined about cancel culture, etc. Though I got kicked out of the conference near the end because some people realized who I was. 
and they sort of confronted me and a guy accused security that I that I had threatened to stab them, which was a complete lie. <laughs> yeah, this is that that weirdo uh, MAGA communist guy has, right? Yeah, he, I went out to go to the toilet near the end. I had drank a little coffee. I can't drink coffee. <laughs> um, and this woman is like, oh, are you leaving? I'm like, no, I just need the toilet. And then he comes up behind me and says, hey, did you call me? A weasel brain online. Yeah, I, pro I probably did. Probably. <laughs> I think I did. I think I found that tweet later. I did, in fact, call him one. Um, and he started, he flipped out on me, like, I should deck you right now. Yeah, go ahead. Give it a try. And then this woman, this small woman, who I guess was a more normal Urushite, saw what was happening and tried to, you know, as a reasonable person would do, be like, hey, guys, calm down, calm down. Because he was trying to come at me. And he starts pushing her around. Like to try to get at me, which is just, you know, he's she's a tiny, like five foot tall woman. And I go, you know, stop pushing her. So and he gets a little embarrassed, and then he goes, "Hey, security! This this guy threatened to stab me or or Daniel Burke, one of their other guys," which was complete nonsense. And of course, the security then just to defuse the situation took me out. I wasn't gonna fight with the security, <laughs> you know. But yeah. And I don't really care. Who cares? It's a funny ending to the conference. Uh, probably a better ending than what was coming up. But it is just supremely hypocritical that they whine about. They've hopped on the free speech grift, the idea that people are being canceled for their opinions and that they're being canceled for their opinions when they kick me out of their conference for doing for having an opinion. Yeah, I mean, we should point out that these people are not really worth talking about much more. I have a I did a separate video and podcast about like the whole MAGA communist thing, which is not communist in any way. It's actually just basically fascist. I mean, I have a whole long thing about that. Uh, and it's very similar. This like patriotic socialism, which is very similar to so-called national socialism, especially considering it's not socialist and it's very fascistic. But it's very telling that those people like uh, Jackson Hinkle and Haas, they were at, they were actively participating in this LaRoucheite conference. And LaRouche was himself a fascist. I mean, he was very clearly a fascist. And we should recognize that, that there is a long history of fascism, once again, as I said, portraying itself as third positionist, neither left nor right, even though it is objectively far right, extreme right. And Mussolini, he got his start in the Socialist Party, although he later said, people ask us, what is the program of the fascists? The program is to smash the skulls of the socialists. And Hitler and, and Mussolini committed genocide, political genocide against Marxists, communists, socialists, the labor organizers. Like they exterminated them. That's what fascists have always done. But we see that there's this, again, like fascists always try to portray themselves as a false revolution. They co-opt socialist sounding rhetoric against, you know, the financial bourgeoisie, against banks against financial speculators. And LaRouche himself did this. I mean, as you mentioned, LaRouche, he got his start as a Trotskyite, and then he took a turn hard to the right and became a fascist. In fact, LaRouche, his cult, and it was literally a cult and still is, he's, he died in 2019, but it's still a cult. He told his followers to take nunchucks and to go break up meetings of communists, to hmm. go attack communists with nunchucks. He formed coalitions and alliances with neo-Nazis, with white supremacists, ironically also with the Nation of Islam. So equal opportunity, you know, far right group. I mean, 
the Rush was always this very fascistic figure. And today we see they, the, the LaRoucheites, this cult, they've tried to co-opt the anti-war movement. And this brings me to this viral video of this LaRoute cult, cult member named Jose Vega. I have him blocked on Twitter. I have all these, these, these uh, LaRoucheites blocked on Twitter because they're fascists. I mean, they are deeply destructive people. Like a, a somewhat, someone who is uh, even a little, uh, even maybe potentially more paranoid than I might assume that they're involved with intelligence. I mean, LaRouche himself always claimed to be involved with intelligence. And he, this guy, Jose Vega, who's a LaRouche cultist, he interrupted this meeting with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC. And he, he called, out, called her out for not opposing the proxy war in Ukraine. And it's like, look, you said the same thing. Neither of us is like a fan of the squad. I have a lot of criticisms of the squad and like this left wing of the Democratic Party. Like, I don't think AOC is like some great principled socialist. She's certainly not. She's done a lot of unprincipled things. But what these people are doing is they are, crit uh, They it seems like they're criticizing the squad and AOC from the left because they're calling them out for not being anti-war. But what they're actually doing is trying to co-opt a lot of that energy into the right. And you can see very clearly below this viral tweet, which got almost 11,000 retweets, over 2,000 cited tweets, 36,000 likes. One of the first comments is from a Fox News producer asking for permission to use it all across Fox News. And of course, they gave permission and Fox News used it. And, and Tucker Carlson did an entire segment about this. And who's this guy who used, he, he, he's the one who interrupted AOC. He is a... He is a LaRouche cultist. I guess I should unblock him so people can see. His Twitter handle is Think Like Beethoven, and he's promoting Vote Diane Serre, who is this LaRouche cultist who's running for Senate. And then his other Twitter, uh, in his Twitter bio, his other hashtag is Exonerate LaRouche. So these people are part of a fascist cult, and they're trying to, they're trying to mislead people who rightfully, people on the left who might have criticisms of AOC and the squad for not being anti-war and anti-imperialist, but they're trying to basically say the real allies are these fascists like Tucker Carlson and the Republican Party. And by the way, the Schiller Institute, which is this, this is the front group of the LaRouche cult, which I was talking about. The Schiller Institute is very pro-Trump. They basically claim that they're like, they are like Bonapartists. They claim that like Trump is like this Bonapartist figure and they're going to try to like re-industrialize the United States through Trump. And they're based, I mean, they are fascists. So like, again, but I'm they're not saying we shouldn't I mean, criticize, well, yeah. one final thought here. I'm not saying we shouldn't criticize AOC and the squad from the left for being opportunists and they should be anti-war, but we should understand that, th that these people who claim to be anti-war critics of the, of the squad, they're not doing it from the left. They're doing it from the right, and they're actually quite literally trying to recruit people for fascism. Yeah, and the Schiller Institute is a good arm for that because over the years they've had, you know, left-wingers speak at their conferences, people who I agree with, but they're very malleable, you know, and they're taking this moment right now to sort of go for a lane that the weakness of the anti-war movement has left open because some of the things that they shouted at AOC or even most of them, you know, are true. I don't think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is an anti-imperialist, even really a socialist. 
I've never thought that. I've never been disillusioned by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. From the beginning, you know, she was an intern in Ted Kennedy's office. She's a she's a politico working Elaine. But when they promote Tulsi Gabbard at the same time, I think everything we've talked about over the course of this this broadcast, you know, I don't know how you can be rigorous and still support Gabbard if your opposition to Cortez is over funding for the Ukraine war. Because when Gabbard was in Congress, she called for funding of the Ukraine war. You know, it's you can't. You can make your criticism of Alexandria Cortez, Ocasio Cortez, but I'm not going to believe that it's your genuine concern when you're supporting Gabbard. Not for a minute. Yeah, and for me, what what this gets down to is there's a there's in fascism there's always been a deep strain of opportunism and what people call tailism, right? Which is a form of opportunism where you tail your your political movement, organization, or party to go along with these like reactionary sensibilities of whatever group you're trying to appeal to instead of taking a, pr a principled line. And Lenin himself always spoke out against tailism and certainly opportunism. He was ruthless in his criticism of you know Kautsky and others calling them a renegade and all this. And the point is that it, it's true. It is very difficult being uh, in the, on the left, always being marginalized by you know bourgeois politics and the media, never being able to have a mainstream platform, always seeing that the political class, whether it's you know the the two different factions of the the bipartisan dictatorship of the ruling class, Republicans or Democrats, or in European countries, the Tories and the neoliberal uh, you know Blairites and labor, or in France, like the the dead and decadent, uh, socialist party that was never really socialist or like now Macron and this like false dichotomy between like you have to support this the center right banker Macron against the far right, you know, neo-fascist. It's very frustrating. I get it. Always being in this figure as leftists and anti-imperialists, as socialists. And sometimes it can be attractive to say, oh, wow, I can get a big mainstream platform going on Tucker Carlson or, you know, these far right politicians like Le, Le Pen and Trump and and they claim like they're trying to co-opt some anti-war rhetoric. So maybe we can work within their movement and win over the MAGA people. That's pure opportunism. It's not going to work. It doesn't work. Historically, all it has led to is strengthening those right wing movements and destroying the left. So th this is a recipe for disaster. This whole like MAGA communist nonsense and all that stuff like it's it's not going to strengthen the left. All it's going to help is 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 all it's going to help is the far right is these fascistic movements. And especially in this moment, I truly think that we're in a moment right now where the legitimacy of of the bourgeois capitalist establishment has completely been eroded. We see a fundamental crisis of legitimacy within these imperialist institutions like the European Union, to a lesser extent NATO, although NATO has unfortunately been given like a big shot in the arm by this war in, in Ukraine and the Russian invasion. But the point is that a lot of people recognize across the imperial core in the so-called West that their governments are, are not popular. They are beholden to large corporate interests, big capitalists. They are not democratic. They are repressing democracy. And in this moment, you, there are different paths. There's socialism or barbarism. It's, this is the you know, famous analysis of Rosa Luxemburg 100 years ago, and it's not different today. It's obviously the center has lost legitimacy, but at the same time, there's a fight going on for ideological hegemony. 
between the left and the fascists. And the fascists are ascendant, especially in Europe, but also in the US. And they're, they have a different narrative. And they also recognize that the center has collapsed, but they're trying to co-opt the energy toward extremely destructive fascistic politics. And saying that, oh, well, they're more popular. They have a big platform on Fox News and whatever. And so therefore we should like tail ourselves to their movement is pure opportunism is only going to strengthen strengthen them. So like, obviously it's hard to always have like that principled line on the left, but these people like Tulsi Gabbard, Tucker Carlson, Zemur, Zemur, Le Pen, I mean, they are harbingers of a fascist movement. I would and say I, they I just, are fascists, but yeah. Yeah. And I, I just can't stress that point enough. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation today. Yeah. And a lot of them say, well, why wouldn't you go on Fox? You go on CNN and stuff like that. And to sort of address that argument, like you said, you can't, I think you can go on anywhere if you're pursuing a sort of media angle to your political engagement but you can't change your mind depending where you're going on. And it seems like a lot of this movement, they, when they go on Carlson, they attack the left. That's why he has them on. He wouldn't have them on for any other reason. You know, that's the only reason they have him on. Um, even you mentioned that segment Carlson made against Cortez when the, the video came out, because the video was plastered all over Fox news with uh, Jose Vega. I talked to Jackson Hinkle at the conference for a little bit and he was saying like they had actually asked him to come on that night. And, you know, when you go on a show, you'll text back and forth about what you want to speak about. And they ended up not having him on, but the text that he wrote to them, they used as sort of the skeleton for the entire show. They're basically writing these attacks for them and they can write them most effectively because they come from the left. Maybe they were genuinely on the left at one point and abandoned it for their media career. But they have these often very appropriate criticisms because the left is a mess. You know, there's it's completely incoherent and there's a lot of opportunists and hypocrites who went in another direction, another sort of semi-fascistic direction, sort of sold out to the Democratic Party. Those exist in an abundance. That's the entire, these group of so-called Democratic Socialists in Congress. I don't really think a single one of them has any commitment to that. So they can make these critiques very well, but they don't, they were, because it's important for their media career, they will not make the same criticisms of people like Carlson or Gabbard when it's amply well-documented, all the stuff we've said right here, it's not, it's not hidden. It's not even particularly obscured, but they'll take any criticism of them as like a, a democratic, a Democrat party criticism, like, only Hillary Clinton attacks, criticizes Tulsi Gabbard. Only Joe Biden criticizes Donald Trump. But again, I don't support Obama because John McCain criticizes him. So I'm not going to support Trump because Biden criticizes him either. It's, it's the same narrative they use to try to justify this narrow chauvinistic nationalism or even worse, like this just ridiculous, like uh, anti-feminism like supporting like uh, alleged human traffickers like Andrew Tate, who's a complete misogynist, just a horrible, just a horrible person, a monster, or like this, these disgusting positions against LGBT people. And, and like the reality is that, yes, the ruling class, well, first of all, the ruling class is divided, as we see in the US and Europe, definitely. The ruling class is divided between the liberal faction of the capitalist class and the straight up fascist faction. Peter Thiel is funding a lot of this stuff. And Peter Till is a billionaire. I mean, he, the idea that like Peter Till is against the establishment, 
who funds like all of this like fascistic far right stuff. I mean, CIA he is a contracts. billionaire capitalist. Sorry, he has CIA contracts. You know, or yeah, Palantir is a military intelligence wing. It's not really a private company, even though it technically is. It's the biggest surveillance tool currently used, and the By most police powerful. departments all over the U.S. Yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so, and this gets into the whole thing about Tulsi Gabbard being involved in a psychological psychological operations unit. Like, you can't help but wonder, and, you know, Alex Jones as well, you can't help but wonder how much of this is also being driven by intelligence to try to, to, try to disrupt the anti-war movement, anti-imperialist movement, to, you know, like a new in COINTELPRO, which never really ended. But even aside from that, that's stuff that it's hard to find concrete evidence on. But the point is that the reality is that the ruling class is divided. That's true. And there are liberal elements of the ruling class that try to cynically co-opt LGBT rights and environmentalism and feminism and anti-racism to justify imperialism and neoliberalism. Obviously, the left should oppose that. But that doesn't mean that the left opposes feminism and LGBT rights and anti-racism. Like Those all are, are absolutely obligatory, mandatory parts of any left-wing struggle against capitalism, patriarchy, against, you know, uh, racism, national oppression, settler colonialism, like those are all important things just because like a neoliberal Democrat will sometimes like pretend to do a land acknowledgement as if they care about colonialism. Like that doesn't mean that that's bad. So it, this comes down to this idea that just because the ruling class does something doesn't mean you should do the opposite. That's right. not, that's not a coherent politics. That's just contrarianism. And the reality is that a lot of these people, they say, oh, the ruling class, at least elements of the ruling class, claim to talk about the climate change, although Trump is still a climate change denier. But anyway, and a huge part of the Republican Party are climate change deniers, climate science deniers. So just because sometimes the ruling class will say they support trans rights and, and support the, the environment doesn't mean that we should all say that, that climate change is a conspiracy, it's false, and that like trans people are the, the reason for imperialism. Like That's just so insane. Right. And it's so I, I actually wonder also how much these people really believe it, like the so-called like manga communist fascists or like some of these these tailists. I think in their case, it's also just straight up opportunism, which often makes it even worse. And once again, Mussolini, I'm not saying Mussolini was a secret socialist. He was not. He literally murdered socialists, but he was an opportunist who got his start as a socialist. And also LaRouche, LaRouche got his start as a Trotskyite and became a straight up fascist. Like there's a long history of these, these traitors and turncoats and opportunists. They probably never really believed in the left and they found much better political, you know, opportunities for their career and, and to become like a political figure on the right. And they turn far to the right. And there's a long history of that. Yeah. I mean, about the values that like you shouldn't reject just because members of the ruling class support it conservatives are always crowing about family and community and you know culture those are all good things to you know obviously not their conception of them because when they say it that's often a front for like you know women having no rights uh, no abortion rights or culture is just white culture but family is a great value you know family is wonderful community is wonderful culture is definitely the best thing in the world but I'm not going to reject either any of those things because conservatives and fascists claim to support them. It's the same logic as you should rejecting all those, those values you mentioned. You have to think about what you believe in and why you believe in it. And just because your enemy critiques something doesn't mean 
or just because your enemy supports something doesn't mean it's wrong. Just because someone critiques something your enemy supports doesn't mean they're right. Essentially. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly, I mean, the point that I just keep, I keep wanting to stress in a lot of these conversations because just wrapping up here, like I said, I've been involved in the anti-war movement for about 15 years. And for the first time in the past few years, I have really seen a, a right-wing turn in a lot of anti-war uh, organizations or movements and individuals. And that is pretty new. I mean, I do remember when there was like the whole like Ron Paul revolution thing. And like, there's always been a kind of libertarian current in parts of the anti-war movement. But we're talking, I'm talking about something that's even worse than that. Like I have a lot of criticisms of libertarianism, right? But we're talking about straight up fascists. And I, I just want to say again, that I think a lot of this is, is a, it's a, concerted effort this is not organic it's not something that just just emerged out of the void this is something that is being driven certainly by like the steve bannon networks that have a lot of money and funding by the peter Thiel networks and potentially intelligence that's of course where we can't really find concrete evidence other than tulsi gabbard being involved in the psychological operations for the u.s army which is certainly noteworthy but i, I just wrapping up the last note i wanted to say here is that you know, I, I try to end on a uh, on a positive note. Um, the last thing I wanted to say is, you know, you, Marlon, you've been involved a lot in French politics. You lived in France and you kind of go back between France and the U.S. And I think there are figures who are positive models. We talked about all the horrible opportunists and fascistic figures like Marine Le Pen and Zemmour. Well, one of the few people in, in the kind of more mainstream European left who I think is a good model for how to deal with these problems, how to grapple with these contradictions is Jean-Luc Mélenchon. He's certainly not without criticism, he's not perfect, but he is someone like Corbyn in the UK who was able to articulate opposition to NATO and the EU and imperialism and war, but without engaging in like this right-wing opportunism. And of course we saw what happened with Corbyn. Corbyn was just completely destroyed by the British media, by the ruling class, by intelligence agencies were involved in sabotaging his campaign. We saw in the most recent French presidential election, Mélenchon came very close actually to coming uh, just enough in second place to actually beating Le Pen. And it could have potentially been a runoff between him and uh, him and Macron. And, and uh, the unfortunate irony is that it seems to me that one of, that one of the reasons for that is because the left was divided and the Communist Party, which has a, still has a, a somewhat strong support base in France, especially in the labor unions, they actually fielded their own candidate, whereas previously they had supported Mélenchon. And if the French Communist Party had supported Mélenchon and his party, La France Insoumise, then, and if most of the people who voted for the communists had voted for Mélenchon, he actually probably ironically would have beaten Le Pen. So anyway, the point is that we talk a lot about like the, the ascendant far right, and they can often amplify and exaggerate how influential they are because they have media, because there are, you know, capitalists who, who are willing to fund them on mainstream media, which they won't fund the main, the left on mainstream media. But we shouldn't over exaggerate. You know, Mélenchon came close to defeating Le Pen, and I think he does offer another another path. Yeah, I mean, I criticized Corbyn a little here based on something Mélenchon said about him, that Corbyn was constantly apologizing. You know, he was taking the media on their own terms. And like you said, the, the left doesn't get funded by the media or really presented by the media in any way. 
something that made Melanchthon very attractive in addition to his political line was his style, which it's a shame he speaks French, even though his style is so French, because it's hard to translate over for people to really get the picture. He's a very pugnacious guy. He does not back down on anything. You know, he maintains his line. And if people call him out for it, he exposes how ridiculous they are for calling him out on it. He is the only candidate who actually talks about taking France out of NATO. He has a lot of great contacts in Latin America. He's good friends with AMLO. He is, you know, friends with Lula. The same judge, actually, this could be a whole other topic, but there was Sergio Moro, obviously, went after Lula da Silva in Brazil. And he tr hosted like a training conference on anti-corruption that this judge in France who prosecuted Mélenchon once for shouting at a cop went to. Maybe that's a little too conspiratorial, but it's the same judge. So th it's all the same and sort of things. And he's opposed this drive to war in the past. He's always called for diplomacy and more trade with China and Russia and obviously been accused of everything for that. Um, but he has forcefully rejected in the clearest terms in a way that nobody in French politics is actually doing, not even, you know, the, the liberals who are turning further and further to the right in France, even more so in the U.S. than in the U.S., I think. He's rejected this idea that immigration and non-white people are a threat to France. Everybody in France talks about the great replacement, which is sort of on a continuum with what Tulsi Gabbard is talking about with this anti-white stuff. You know, everyone in, in the U.S., they're saying like, you know, all this anti-white racism is going to lead to us being replaced, which they really mean they're going to lose political power. Um, but Mélenchon has this idea called creolisation, which comes from a poet uh, in French Polynesia, uh, not Polynesia, in the Caribbean. Um, and this idea that cultures form from interaction with other cultures. And he says very clearly, immigration is not a threat. Immigrants are not a threat. You know, there's no, and he articulates well that there is no contradiction between being the most anti-imperialist candidate, the most anti-imperialist force in mainstream French politics and maintaining a commitment to all these ideals, these, you know, humanistic and progressive ideals that people here for some reason now only associate with sellout liberals because they've sort of co-opted them a little. Yeah, well, I think that's a really good note to end on just because it's easy to, to criticize all of these awful opportunists and, and tailists and fascists and liberals. And it's good to point to at least a few people who could potentially be models or if not models, at least people we can learn from. And in the case of Melon Schoen, I think there's definitely a lot to look at there. Um, I want to thank you so much, Marlon. We're speaking with Marlon Edinger. People should definitely go follow Marlon on Twitter. You can follow him at Marlon Edinger. And also you should go check out his Substack, footnotesnews.substack.com. I will link to that in the description below. Um, Marlon, just as we wrap up here, as we conclude, I, I you say in your Twitter bio that you're writing two books. I, I'm wondering if you just want to plug those really quickly. Um, I'll plug them in the abstract because they're the type of writing two books where I couldn't give you a deadline on them. Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote a, a piece for Liberated Texts, which is sort of has a link with that book a while ago about U.S. soldier revolts in Vietnam. I found the subject really interesting. And then I found a lot about soldier revolts in the South Vietnamese army. Um, 
the ARVN, which were often had like a political basis and everything. So I've been doing some research on that, but that's very protean, a very protean idea. And we'll put it there because I want to write it. And I will, because I used to say I was writing three books and I wrote the Zamora book. So if it's up there, you make yourself write it. Um, and then, yeah, the Maxwell, U.S. versus Maxwell trial. I have a lot of notes and a good draft of that. Couldn't tell you exactly when it's coming out. I covered the whole trial. I was there in person in Manhattan. And I've sort of covered that whole web of cases for a long time or followed it, covered it more over the past couple of years. Yeah, I mean, that's a, obviously a whole other huge can of worms. It's not unrelated. And we're talking about intelligence and far right mm -hmm. networks, but all of the, the Epstein case and all of that, you did a great job during the the Maxwell trial. I was following your writing. I know that, cool. that would have been uh, I couldn't deal with that torture, but I'm glad we had people like you there just sitting through that every single day. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Maxwell was recently in the Daily Mail whining about cancel culture. So maybe there's a little bit of a connection. <laughs> yeah, a literal convicted child trafficker and pedophile. I know. It, talking about cancel culture. I mean, there you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> says everything. Well, I want to thank you so much. It was a great conversation. We got to cover so many different topics, but all related. And I think this is so important. I mean, I'm trying to to do more on this. I Like I said, mentioned earlier, I have an episode with Robbie Martin. I will also link to that in the description below so people can check out that. We talked about Tucker Carlson and Ron DeSantis and how they try to co-op this anti-war energy in, in, and sheepdog it into the Republicans and supporting neocons like Ron DeSantis. So this isn't necessarily new, but it's it's really troubling to see it continue to, to gain steam. With that said, I want to thank everyone who is watching or listening. If you're watching, you can also listen to this as a podcast. And of course, uh, you can support my work at Patreon. I'll have a link to that in the description below. And I'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.